0: Well, there is your reminder. We have small groups coming, and they are coming fast, and we are super stoked about them. If you are unaware of all of our small groups, I've got all these sticky notes reminding me to remind you about small groups, so I do my job. There is a booklet out in the foyer. I think maybe it might have even been in your bulletin, but this has all the small groups listed. There's no excuses. Everybody has to join. Everybody should be a part of something. If you want deep conversation, it's there. If you wanna play pickleball, it's there. If you wanna hang out by a lake, it's there. If you wanna talk about the sermon, which you might after today, it's there. So we want you to get involved. Ann, Pastor Ann, all the way in the back, she's in the back, she's waving. She's in charge of all of it. So if you have any questions, make sure you see her. Um, But it's gonna be an awesome fall. I am Pastor Andrew, if we have not met before. I've been up here a few times. I'm newer to the church. I am really excited to share this morning with you. Um, We have been working through a You Asked For It series, and today is on racism in the church. And that is near and dear to my heart. I'm going to share some of my story. I'll figure out why in a few minutes. But I want to just preface, before I go into this sermon, um, I'm going to be referencing a couple books this morning One is called How We Love Matters by Albert Tate's really great book. The other is Latasha Morrison, Be the Bridge. I'm gonna leave them up on this table. These are two really great resources if you're looking to learn more about what we're speaking on this morning. And then I wanna invite you tonight to come back to church in room, I think 130 or 31, the big room that's over here on the right, still learning those numbers. Um, We're gonna have a talk back which is just essentially I'm going to be there for any questions you might have or anything you might want to ask about in regards to the topic today um, or just to have some extra discussion. I think this is really important, not just in our world, but especially in the life of the church, which if you see the title, this is specific this morning to the church. The last thing I'll say before I pray for myself this morning, I recognize that this is a tough topic. Um, I also recognize that I'm not an expert or pro on it. Um, I am learning as I go, and I have been praying over the last, since I got assigned, I don't know when that was, um, over these months because I really believe this is important. And so I just ask this morning that you would keep an open heart and you would recognize you don't have an expert or a professional in the room up here today, just somebody who is trying to figure it out. So would you pray with me? Jesus, we are yours in these moments and we just want you to speak to our hearts, myself included. I pray that the stories that I share this morning, your scripture that we're gonna read, God, the things that you're asking of us, that you would just, you would be the voice this morning. These would be your words, this would be your truth, and we would be changed because of it. We love you so much, it's in your name we pray, amen. Well, I remember the day like it was yesterday. Um, We had just had this goodbye ceremony Uh, It's typical in Ethiopia. We were in a small orphanage in Nazareth, Ethiopia. I don't know how many of you have been there before. We were now on our way back to the guest house, and I was the brand new mom of a 10-month-old baby boy named Baruch. If you've met him, he's not so small anymore. His birth mom had given him that name, and his name means blessing, so we felt like that was fit after uh, our journey of infertility and our journey to Ethiopia. And as I held him that day which, by the way, there were no car seats. You just held him in the car and drove past the cows and things. I couldn't help but be stunned by his beauty. He was a little on the pudgy side. He was very well-fed where he was. His dark brown skin was softer than anything I had ever felt. I just kept wanting to touch it over and over, and his smile still to this day lights up any room that he walks in. After an almost 10-year journey of infertility and a three-year adoption wait for our first child, God gifted us with this amazing baby boy, and I was finally a mom. I'm not sure if you know, but if you've been a parent, it doesn't come with a parent handbook. Like, people try to write them, but it doesn't really work out. You never can be fully prepared. Um, instead, I feel like it's this trial by error. Uh, I need a whole lot of grace. I'm going to need a tribe of people um, on this journey of parenthood, and nothing is going to prepare me for it. Throw in the fact that I was going to be a white mom, raising a brown-skinned baby boy, and well, you might as well just told me that I really wasn't gonna be prepared, period. I grew up in upstate New York. Um, It is like half an hour away from Canada. It's very much in the sticks, not a diverse community. While my school consisted mostly of white kids and my church that my dad pastored consisted of mostly white people, um, my best friend at the time was of mixed race. Her mom was white and her father was black. However, I never once took the time to ask her about her identity, what it was like to be a minority. I knew about her home life, which wasn't ideal, but I didn't really understand what it meant to be in her skin on a day-to-day basis. Fast forward to my very first job as a youth pastor in Hagerstown, Maryland. I happened to be in an area where I had white, Latino, African-American teens in my youth ministry, teens whose stories I knew, teens who I did life with on a daily basis, teens who I still never talked about race with. It wasn't until a few months after we adopted Baruch, which I was 33 years old, that I began to see really how ignorant I was about the idea of race and racism and how much I had to do to learn personally. I remember the first time that I realized, wow, raising a black child is gonna be totally different than anything I've been prepared for. We were living in Western Maryland at the time, and we happened to be on a mall scavenger hunt with our youth group. And I was this proud mom and I was pushing my baby boy who really, I think we only had been home a couple months and I just thought it was the greatest thing ever to have a kid in a stroller. And that's when it happened. A man coming toward me said loud enough for my entire youth group to hear, what's that white lady doing with that blankety blank black kid? I'm not going to lie. I went a little mama bear and I mean, I'm not a super aggressive person, but my youth group kids did say, don't say anything, hold back. And I just felt the anger boiling inside of me and like withheld my words and my actions. But that day for me marked the beginning of a journey. I could tell you lots of times about things people have said to us and ignorance or um, things that weren't helpful to us or just looks that we get. My other child, if you don't know, us from India. So, you know, we look different when we walk in a space. But that wouldn't be helpful to you this morning. Um, it would be the comment that came several years later When i was up on the campus of eastern nazarene college up in boston that caused me to take a hard look at my role of what i could or could not be doing moving forward as a white person it's helpful to know the campus vnc which is where i was pastoring and as a youth pastor and teaching youth ministry courses it's comprised of 40 to 50 percent non-white students it's one of the most diverse christian campuses in the nation and one of the things that I loved about working up there was anywhere I went, there were just different perspectives, different perspectives, cultures, religious affiliations, races, you name it, and we all did life together. That's when, um, when a couple years into my job, there was a Nazarene church that was local to us and they had invited some students and then people of the community to observe uh, Netflix documentary 13th. I don't know if you've seen that. It's a thought-provoking piece on the criminalization of African-Americans and the US prison boom. I would highly recommend it. They told us that we were gonna watch it and we were gonna discuss it, and so Nate and I found a babysitter. We signed up, we were like, we wanna learn more. We had no idea how those moments would shape us. The documentary was overwhelming, to say the least. It was a reminder of how little I understood about racism in America. It was a reminder of how naive I was as a white mom, but also as a pastor on a college campus. And that night we were given a chance to like share our takeaways and our feelings and our thoughts and all I, all I could do was just sit in the circle and sob. I couldn't put into words what I felt. I tried to explain that I was a white mom of a black child and like every word that I said just felt like it wasn't enough. And then that's when the real comment came a young African-American girl came to me and she said, I want you to know, ironically, she was from the same place I was born, Baltimore, I want you to know that just because you and your husband are white does not mean that your black child is. He will be raised in a white home, but he will always be black. And honestly, I didn't know how to respond. I think I was a little defensive at first, like, what are you trying to tell me? But as I headed home, we got in the car and Nate and I sat in the parking lot of our driveway driveway of our house. I just sobbed, realizing even as I held my baby that night that the road ahead was gonna be messy. And the reality that racism is prevalent and it is in our world sat heavy in my soul. I believe that the church, those of us that call ourselves Jesus followers, we are the ones that have been called to sit in the messiness of our world and also to be part of the remedy to what's broken and what continues to be broken in the world. There's a passage in Revelation 7 uh, verse 9 that paints this picture of what eternity is gonna look like. It says, after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The difficult truth is that we're a long ways off of that picture of eternity and the church actually should be the place in which we're practicing for eternity. Instead, Sunday mornings have kind of been the segregated hour of the week, one of the most segregated hours of the week. Albert Tate in the book, Love Matters, he puts it this way. I just feel that if we're going to be spending eternity together, we we should start right now and the church is where we practice. It's where we come together and execute this vision. We see multi-ethnicity and diversity all throughout the early church in the Acts of the Apostle and subsequent books. We see people coming together who have no business of being together because they understand that we'll be living out eternity together and that's what the church should be now not just then. We need to be preparing for eternity now. In May of 2020, just a couple months after the world shut down due to COVID, and I didn't live in this state, but I'm sure it was very similar. After the death of George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man who was killed by a white police officer, there was a firestorm of racial tension. Protests broke out all over. I would imagine you experienced that here much like we did in Boston riots were unfolding in major cities, marches became commonplace, news channels and social media presented themselves in biased ways, and the church universal found itself at this crossroads. My guess is that much like where I was, like here, that quickly we began to show the content of our hearts. And churches, even those that claim diversity as theirs, Recognize in those moments and those hours that diversity is not cheap. True diversity, that requires a deep kind of racial reconciliation. It actually requires real and difficult work. And so racial tension and racism in the church began to play itself out in a way in which the world outside of the church took notice. Paul lived in a church that was constantly under tension. Um, He was smart enough to know that if you were gonna get a bunch of people in the same place, coming from different perspectives, different life experiences, different stories, different cultures, different backgrounds, there was bound to be division. Somebody said the other day, so much of Paul's writings is like trying to fix division. What Paul also realized was that Jesus had come and he literally had the power to transform lives. Meaning he could reconcile what was broken, whether it was relationships or systems. He could forgive the unforgivable. He had the power to unify. He had the power to bring hope in desolate situations, which we have observed in our lives as Jesus' followers. But he was calling the church and his writing to something bigger than themselves. He was calling them to live out a way where the Holy Spirit would just seep so much inside of us That our lives would be different and so this passage that i'm about to read to you in romans chapter 12 beginning with verse 9 is all about what happens when we love the way jesus loves in a world that needs transformation beginning with verse 9. love must be sincere hate what is evil cling to what is good be devoted to one another in brotherly love honor one another above yourselves Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll, reap, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I want to tell you this morning that how we choose to love one another matters. When we don't understand each other's perspectives and we're trying, how we choose to love matters. When it's easier to stay silent and walk away, how we choose to love matters. When we see people that are suffering and we don't know how to make sense of it or we can't relate, how we choose to love matters. When we would rather shut off the news and pretend this isn't happening in our world, how we choose to love matters. And when it comes to racial tension in the church that is still 100% prevalent, how we choose to love as Paul talks about matters. This kind of love that Paul is talking about, it's not a human kind of love. Thank goodness that the Holy Spirit helps us in that. It is others-oriented. It is sacrificial. It's unselfish. It takes initiative. It suffers with. It spends its life on behalf of others. I love the Beacon commentary when I was studying this passage said, said this. Love isn't just a feeling. It is sincere goodwill seeking to understand and identify with one another. Love listens, love's honest, love quickly surrenders its own opinions and prejudices when truth becomes apparent. Love reaches out the hand and opens the heart to the other. It says, I see you, I hear you, I am here. Love does not play games. It really cares and it stands ready to sacrifice self for the other's welfare and happiness. It's literally a Jesus kind of love. And so when I read that and I think about the church universal, and honestly, I've only been in this church for about nine months, and you have welcomed my family of mixed race in this space, I still wonder, are we really handling racism in the church in the way that Paul talks about As a kid, our family used to eat around a table, much like this, although this is much prettier than one we owned when we were younger, but we used to eat around the table. My every, uh, on occasion, special occasion, my mom would give us a TV tray and we could watch TV. Those of you that grew up with that, maybe you know what that is. But we mostly gathered around this table and when we sat around there, I have two sisters, two parents, my dad was a pastor my mom and my dad. Um, we would sit around that table and we would talk about the latest sports we were playing, the boys we liked, uh, the stuff that was happening in school with our friends who we had a crush on, all that good stuff. We'd bicker with our parents. It was just what you did around the table. Fast forward, we're all, uh, I think we're all over 40 now, so that's good for all of us old people. We gather on this table just a couple weeks ago. We were in New Jersey on vacation and We gather around and we're all scrunched in there with our uh, kids now and like my brother-in-laws and like it's 14 of us. There's a lot of us. And the conversations have shifted. Now we begin to listen to each other's stories about where God's working, where God's challenging us. Um, We disagree over news stations. And let me tell you, it's divided in the household. I won't tell you which way. We raise our voices, we get mad at each other, we get angry, we cry, we laugh, we play games, we ask hard questions, it is a family table and it is a place of safety for us. When I first started as a youth pastor, I don't know how this started, you'll have to ask somebody that has a better memory than me, but we started something called Spaghetti Wednesday. And we would invite our youth workers around the table before youth group and we would eat spaghetti. Fast forward to when we get up to ENC, the college, and we began to open our house to college students. And we would have spaghetti Wednesday. If you ask anybody, they know exactly what it is. At 5 p.m., all these college students would dump in. They'd get one bowl of spaghetti, one brownie, one piece of garlic bread. It was very low-key and very cheap. Nate made all of it. When they came into our space and they sat around our table, our hope was that they would feel loved and they would feel valued and they would have a place to call home. If you popped in on any given night, you would hear conversations about the cafeteria food they hated the professor that they hated. They hated a lot of things as college students, so whatever was on the docket for that day, and then we would have really tough conversations. Conversations on race, conversations on the LGBTQ community, conversations on politics, on religion, on whatever was on the docket that day, they were not people that held back. I'm not gonna lie, sometimes it got messy. And there were some days that I would text saying, I'm sorry I said that. Can I clarify this? What did you mean by that? There were times that were ugly, and there were times that were moments of grace, but at the end of the day, those students taught me more about life perspective than I would have ever been able to learn. We could have sat around with TV trays easily in our house, but instead we squeezed around this table, and all of our brokenness, our humanity, literally like sometimes there were 20 people around a table this size. Our prejudices, our flaws, our biases, trying to listen to where each other were coming from. And I think that that's what God desires for the church in particular. That when people walk in regardless of their race, regardless of where they've come from, they would sit down at the table together and they would say, this is what I've been looking for. Here's the problem, and I know that this is hard to say. Sometimes we settle for the appearance of diversity in the church when Jesus desires something more. It's kind of like getting everybody in a room with their own TV trays when he wants us to do the hard life around the table. A table where tension is real, a table where questions are allowed to be asked, a table where disagreements are a reality and sometimes you walk away but you always come back to the table. It's a table of humility, it's a table of respect, it's a table of openness. And part of the reason I think we have a hard time coming to the table is because many of us haven't come to the realization that racism is a reality, not just in our world, but in the church. I don't think anybody likes to be called racist, but we've all walked in with our own biases. We say we're colorblind, but we make assumptions based on culture and race and skin color. And even as I've talked with my friends of color and they've shared their experiences, not just in this church, but other churches, of feeling other in a church setting, the reality is we're not drawn to people that look different than us. It's not normal for us just to be gravitated towards people that come from a different background or a different culture. And I'm saying this morning that we're missing out when we don't take the time to hear each other's stories or see from a different perspective. We're missing out when we only talk about race when something big is happening in the news we're missing out when we don't look at history or try to work towards deep reconciliation. When we make general comments towards people who are Asian or African American or Latino or whatever minority, we're missing out on actually getting to know the person and their traits and their giftings and their abilities. When we as a church come into this space and we fail to acknowledge the person in the room that looks different than us, we're missing out on richness of relationships. And so as I've studied and I've thought about this and I've thought, wow, they're putting the newest pastor up there to talk about this particular thing. How do I not offend everybody? My guess is that some of us actually need to be offended. Some of us need to be reminded that this is a reality. And I don't come here with all the right answers all the things that I've put into practice, and hey, it worked, it's great. But I come this morning knowing I have privilege, both as a white person and especially as a pastor, as I share with you. And so I'm, I'm coming in a, in a posture of humility to say, these things that I'm about to give you, it's a call to myself, and it's a call to us as church, as a church, I don't wanna just tell you what I know. I wanna challenge us as a church family sitting around the table together to seven things, and I would encourage you to write these down, that I think come out of Paul's passage in Romans 12 that might just be the start and the scratching on the surface to being a bridge to reconciliation. Because the church, you guys, is where it's gonna happen when we look around our world. So number one is this, start with a posture of humility. In Latasha Morrison's book, which is a great book to first start on this, um, it's called Be the Bridge, she says, if you're white, if you come from the majority culture, you'll need to bend low in a posture of humility. You may need to, t- to talk less, that's hard for me, and listen more, opening your heart to the voices of your non-white brothers and sisters. If you're black, Latino, Native American, or part of any other non-white group, you'll come in with your own posture of humility, though it will look different than that of your white brothers and sisters. In humility, you might need to sit with other non-white groups and learn their stories. Humility says we lay our agenda down. That's really hard. What we think we know or what our privilege is, all of it, we lay it down at the foot of the cross And we start by seeing each other. Pastor Jake talked about humility last week as we were talking about reconciling relationships, which ironically, these things go together. This is no different. Humility takes work, and it takes the Holy Spirit to help us to think less about ourselves and more about the person sitting across from us. It is a posture that we approach with as people. The second thing is this, to study the hard truths of history. History. Um, If there is anything I've taken away in the last like two months of my life, it's that I have no idea what happened in history. Um, As I begin to read books that my mentor shared with me, that my friends have shared with me, I haven't even begun to dig in or scratch the surface of the pain that our non-white brothers and sisters have experienced. And I will tell you it will overwhelm you as you read. We can't actually hate what's evil as he's talking about in Romans 12 in the, in the chapter verse nine, let alone repent and move to a place of reconciliation if we have no idea what the, what the past has included pain-wise. Pain um, it takes us understanding that even though maybe that wasn't our responsibility, we weren't born there, it actually is our responsibility. It is part of our responsibility as the body of Christ. Um, We have that responsibility. It is our role to learn and to listen and to accept what is truth from history in the modern realities of today in order to move forward. And so I would just encourage you, study the hard truths, and it is hard. Number three, celebrate our differences. Um, We love to use the term colorblind. I'm not actually sure that that's what God desires for us. Um, And that might be a surprise. Morrison says in her book, we're called to be color brave, color caring, color honoring, but not color blind. Our differences are actually really awesome. Our cultures, our races, the places that we come from, the things that make us up, we lean into those things. They're part of our our being. It's why as we raise our children, we try to learn about where they came from. Um, They've shaped us, our stories have shaped us. And those things matter. So if we're gonna create unity within the church. We don't ever wanna create the sense of like everybody needs to look the same way and play the same role and believe like all the same like politics and watch the same stuff and all like, we, we major on the majors when it comes to Jesus, but those things that make us up, we celebrate our differences and that's really important. Number four, practice cultural sensitivity. There are so many things that could be said about cultural sensitivity. Um, We put a lot of microaggressions on non-white people assuming that the color of their skin means something. Sometimes it's subtle comments or actions. We've experienced that as a family a lot. I remember one of my black friends at a church that I was at, mostly white, having somebody come up and ask them if they were dressed nice so that people would respect them. I said, what does that even mean? touching somebody's hair because you've never felt a black child's hair is not okay assuming asian americans in the church don't speak english is not okay we have to learn cultural sensitivity we have to learn it inside of the walls of the church if we're going to take this outside and part of that is sometimes just sitting with somebody that looks different than you and asking them questions having a conversation sitting at the table to say, what is offensive? Help me to understand that. Number five is to engage in the hard place and probably all of this feels hard. If we're gonna really see racial reconciliation on this side of heaven, which I hope we will, we have to be willing to engage in hard places. No one likes to be called out. Not we didn't like it as a kid, we definitely don't like it as adults, But some of us do have privilege, and it's a reality. We don't like to wrestle with history and the pain that our friends of color have experienced, but it's also a reality. And wrestling in the hard spaces allows us to lament alongside of our friends. It allows us to move towards change. When we see things that we don't understand and like we're not sure what to do with it, it is a lot easier just to walk away and say it's not my problem but sitting in the spaces together actually brings us together. When Paul talks in verse 10 about brotherly love, like being devoted to one another and brotherly love, it means we choose to engage in the hard places. That's the kind of devotion that we have towards each other, especially as brothers and sisters in Christ. Number six, speak up and don't stay silent. In Albert Tate's book, How We Love Matters, he says, Often the church looks at racial reconciliation as an elective when it should be part of the core curriculum. I love that. Our God is a God who continually pursues reconciliation. It's what he does with us on a daily basis. And we have the ability to speak up, some of us in this room, more than others. We have the responsibility to speak up, some of us in this room, more than others. And Jesus was constantly doing that as we learn, as he learned to be in relationship with people that were marginalized and oppressed, if we learn to do that and we keep Jesus at the center, he will work the rest of it out in the hard conversations. But our job can't be to stay silent. Families speak up for one another. Number seven is this, create space at the table. In the end, racial reconciliation will really only happen not because we read a really great book, but because we invite people to the table to sit with us and do life together. When we begin to confess and lament together, the hurt that people have experienced, when we seek truth at the table, when we acknowledge privilege, when we are aware of ongoing racism in our world, when we stand up for one another, when we realize we are the family and the body of Christ, in the world that has gone crazy, when we begin to sit together and have the tension and the hardness, but still choose to come back to the table over and over again because that's what Jesus does, we'll not only learn from each other, but we will in fact see our hearts transformed and the world around us transformed. It will in fact happen my little baby boy is gonna turn 10 in a couple months. And I watched him in this space at ninja camp, he was climbing ropes and walls and he's all crazy and stuff running around. And as I watched him with his friends and I watched him in this church, which actually I believe God has placed our family in, I could tell you that on another story, for the sake of my black and my brown child, I began to ask what is it gonna look like in another couple years as he navigates like young manhood as a black man in our world. We have a long ways to go when it comes to racism, both outside of the church and inside of the church. And when it comes to racial reconciliation, we have light years to go. I don't want it to look the same way in the church that it does in the rest of the world. I want us to be on the front lines as, as a church for the rest of the world. Morrison says at the close of her book, Jesus didn't come to restore individual people. He came to break down systems of oppression, to provide a way for his kingdom to appear as it is in heaven. He came so that we, his followers, could partner with him, which is so awesome, restoring integrity and justice to broken systems, broken governments, and ultimately broken relationships. Church, if we're going to see it happen, it will start around our tables. The question is, are we going to be ready to do the hard work? Let's pray together. Jesus, you have done an awful lot for us. I think sometimes we forget that. You saw us in our brokenness and our humanity and you stepped in and you said, no matter what, I'm gonna lay my, da- my life down for you. And if we were to go around this room and this space, none of us deserve it. We don't deserve it. We can't deserve it. But you chose it anyway for us. And there are a lot of us in this room that have experienced your grace and your goodness. And this morning you're asking us to extend that to the world around us, and in particular, our brothers and sisters who have and continue to experience racism. Father, we pray, even as we sing this song together in worship, would you start to change our hearts? God, a lot of us, we don't wanna hear it, because it's hard, but the reality is you have called us to reconciliation, the work of it, and it is work. We've been reminded this morning, diversity isn't cheap in the church. We also have to do the hard work. And so God, would you search our hearts in these next moments? If you're asking us to pray at the altar and you want us to pray and you wanna show us what we're supposed to be doing, then we ask that. God, if there's something standing in the way of us seeing from your perspective, remove the barrier. God, for our brothers and sisters who are, 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 are not white in this space, God, We pray that they would feel loved and we lament together this morning, God, the hurt that is real and the reality of that. Father, we pray that we would not look like the rest of the world, but we would set the tone and the pace for the rest of the world. We thank you for the way that you love us. We thank you for your graciousness and your kindness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.